Hi, welcome to the On Your Marks book review podcast with me, Jonathan Marks. This week I review the book, The Art of Possibility, Transforming Professional and Personal Life by Rosamond Stone Zander and Benjamin Zander. The book, published by Harvard Business School Press, is based on a set of practices developed by the authors and based on their very unique partnership as both a couple and as speakers, consultants and coaches. In this podcast, I will share three of the practices that they propose in the book, practices that I believe are relevant to your work life, as they are to all of our relationships, parenting or connections in the world. Almost to the day 20 years ago, I attended the first ever Storytelling in Business conference in New York City. I had come to present my master's research, but mostly to meet and learn from the luminaries of this emerging world of practice and theory. I trekked each day from the closet in which I was living at the Vanderbilt YMCA to the swanky conference venue, and we spent the three days sharing stories, listening to the work and ideas of others, and imagining what this world of storytelling in business could be in the future. On the last day, a film producer, Catalina Groh, shared with us her work in progress, a documentary called Leadership, An Art of Possibility. It was the director's cut of the Ben and Roz Zander story. This book gives the detail and template to what they share so beautifully in the movie. Ben and Roz are, as I said, vastly different people, at least from a professional standpoint. Roz is a family therapist, coach, consultant and landscape painter. Ben is the founder, conductor and musical director for the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra and a professor at the New England Conservatory of Music. Ben is regarded as one of the foremost authorities on the composers Mahler, Bruckner and Beethoven, and Roz is regarded as a pioneer in the field of leadership and leadership coaching, having worked with a wide array of blue-chip clients across the world. This book is, by their own admission, not a how-to book, rather it is, and I quote, This book seeks to provide the reader with the means to lift off from the world of struggle and sail into a vast universe of possibility. End quote. The book, much like a beautiful piece of music, has a recurring songline that echoes through all 12 chapters. Each chapter presents a practice, not a principle or a rule, but a practice, something that the reader can integrate into their lives and improve at over time. At first glance, these appear quite simple, but they are deceptively so. They are no doubt difficult to inculcate and persist at and will require repeated practice. To reinforce this point, Ben shares a story, one of many personal, wonderful and touching stories through the book, of confronting what it means to engage in a practice. I am reminded of a dispiriting moment in a cello lesson with my teacher, Mr. Herbert Withers. He was 83 years old, and I was 11. I tried to play a passage, but couldn't make it work. I tried again, but it didn't work, and a third time, I was no more successful. I remember making a frustrating grimace and putting down the bow. The elderly Mr. Withers leaned over to me and whispered, What? You've been practicing it for three minutes and you still can't play it? This so beautifully illustrates how we rarely and seldom give importance to the practice that is needed to achieve our desired result. We see the outcome of a great sportsperson or musician or artist, and what we don't see are the thousands of hours that go into making that task looked so effortless, elegant and simple. 
Ben and Roz present 12 such principles, and I have avoided repeating these here. If this work excites you, please grab the book and give it a read. Or even better, listen to the audible version. It is narrated by the authors and has some wonderful bits of classical music included with the recording. What I want to do in this podcast is present three practices that I think are relevant to all of us and all we do, almost no matter what sphere of our lives. But before that, and as context to the song line of possibility that runs through the book, I want to share a story from the book that I think speaks perfectly to the power of this thinking with possibility, and how the manner in which we treat ourselves and others can have an impact on the world around us. The Monk's Story A monastery had fallen on hard times. It was once part of a great order which, as a result of religious persecution in the 17th and 18th century, lost all of its branches. It was decimated to the extent that there were only five monks left in the mother house, the abbot and four others, all of whom were over 70. Clearly it was a dying order. Deep in the woods surrounding the monastery was a little hut that the rabbi from a nearby town occasionally used for a hermitage. One day it occurred to the abbot to visit the hermitage, to see if the rabbi could offer any advice that might save the monastery. The rabbi welcomed the abbot and commiserated. I know how it is, he said. The spirit has gone out of people. Almost no one comes to the synagogue anymore. So the old rabbi and the old abbot wept together, and they read parts of the Torah and spoke quietly of deep things. The time came when the abbot had to leave. They embraced. It had been wonderful being with you, said the abbot, but I have failed in my purpose for coming. Have you no piece of advice that might save the monastery? No, I am sorry, the rabbi responded. I have no advice to give. The only thing I can tell you is that the Messiah is one of you. When the other monks had heard the rabbi's words, they wondered what possible significance they might have. The Messiah is one of us? One of us here at the monastery? Do you suppose he meant the abbot? Of course, it must be the abbot, who has been our leader for so long. On the other hand, he might be, have meant Brother Thomas, who is certainly a holy man. Or could he have meant Brother Elrod, who is so crotchety? But then Elrod is so wise. Surely he could not have meant Brother Philip. He's too passive. But then magically, he's always there when you need him. Of course, he didn't mean me, yet supposing he did. Oh Lord, not me. He couldn't have meant me. As they contemplated in this manner, the old monks began to treat each other with extraordinary respect, on the off chance that one of them might be the Messiah. And on the off-off chance that each monk himself might be the Messiah, they began to treat themselves with extraordinary respect. Because the forest in which it was situated was beautiful, people occasionally came to visit the monastery, to picnic or to wander along the old paths most of which led to the dilapidated chapel. They sensed the aura of extraordinary respect that surrounded the five old monks, permeating the atmosphere. They began to come more frequently, bringing their friends, and their friends brought friends. Some of the younger men who came to visit began to engage in conversation with the monks. After a while, one asked if he might join, then another, and then another. Within a few years, the monastery became once again a thriving order, and thanks to the rabbi's gift, a vibrant, authentic community of light and love for the whole realm. What a touching story, and I think this leads beautifully into the first practice. 
and that is called Giving an A. This comes from Ben's work at the New England Conservatory. He teaches a class to grad students, and often they feel the pressure of being outstanding musicians surrounded by other outstanding musicians, who want not only to impress the maestro, but to go on to their own fame and fortune. They enter the class with anxiety about their performance and their final grade. Ben decided to circumvent at least some of this anxiety by giving them all an A at the start of the semester. All they had to do was write a letter to him dated the end of the semester that began with the words, Dear Mr. Zander, I got my A because... Ben and Roz suggest that the practice of giving an A, something that is in no way restricted to the academic environment, transports relationships from measurement to the universe of possibility. The A is not an expectation to live up to, but a possibility to live into. The second practice is leading from any chair. The chapter starts with a very funny anecdote. The world-renowned German conductor Herbert von Karajan was reputed to have jumped into a taxi after a performance at an opera house and shouted at the driver, Hurry, hurry, hurry! Go, go, go! Very good, sir, said the driver, but where to? It doesn't matter, said von Karajan. I'm needed everywhere. While Ben doesn't seem to have the size and ego, it's refreshing that someone clearly in his power as a musician can be self-deprecating enough to realize that, as he says in the book, and I quote, I'd been conducting for nearly 20 years when it suddenly dawned on me that the conductor of an orchestra doesn't make a sound. His true power derives from his ability to make other people powerful. End quote. A practice that Ben took on and one that I have unashamedly taken and used in the classroom, is to place a blank sheet of paper on each music stand in each rehearsal and to invite the players to write down any observations or coaching for him that might enable or empower the musicians to play the music more beautifully. In one example, a musician said he was not doing enough justice to the majestic climax of a Bruckner concerto. That night, Ben conducted a huge crescendo at the end. The musician came to him after the performance and said, You did my crescendo. This, according to Ben and Roz, is what we should all aim for. That no matter the role or where someone sits, they have the ability to lead, and we should be aiming for them to always feel that we are doing their crescendo. The final practice is called Rule Number Six. This is based on a lovely story from the book that I'll share here. Two Prime Ministers are sitting in a room discussing affairs of state. Suddenly a man bursts in, apoplectic with rage, shouting and stamping and banging his fist on the desk. The resident Prime Minister admonishes him. Peter, he says, kindly remember rule number six. Whereupon Peter is instantly restored to complete calm, apologises and withdraws. The politician returns to their conversation, only to be interrupted yet again 20 minutes later by a hysterical woman, gesticulating wildly, her hair flying all over. Again, the intruder is greeted with the words, Marie, please remember rule number six. Complete calm descends once more, and she too withdraws with a bow and an apology. When the scene is repeated for a third time, the visiting Prime Minister addresses his colleague. My dear friend, I've seen many things in my life, but never anything as remarkable as this. Would you be willing to share with me what the secret is of rule number six? Very simple, replied the resident Prime Minister. Rule number six is, don't take yourself so damn seriously. Ah, said the visitor, that is a fine rule. 
After a moment of pondering, he inquires, and what might I ask are the other rules? There aren't any others. What a great story. And I think something that we can all do more of, taking ourselves less seriously. Roz differentiates in this chapter between the calculating self and the central self as drivers of this idea of taking ourselves too seriously. The calculating self is concerned with survival in a world of scarcity. It shouts, take notice of me. Kids do this really well, but often they don't grow out of it and then they become adults acting out the same story. This can lead to what Roz calls downward spiral thinking, back into a world of scarcity rather than upward into a world of abundance. The central self, on the other hand, is a term used to embrace the, and I quote, remarkably generative, prolific and creative nature of ourselves and the world, end quote. Action and conversation from the central self radiate possibility. And when we apply rule number six, says Roz, we lighten up over our childish demands and entitlements and we are instantly transported into a remarkable universe. I absolutely love this book, both the written and the audible version, which I recently listened to on a road trip. Ben and Roz speak and write beautifully, and have a commanding presence without it feeling like I was being preached to or lorded over. Interestingly, Ben has done a lot of work in South Africa, and was a recipient of the ABSA Lifetime Achiever Award for his contribution to music and culture, the first and what I can determine only non-South African to receive this award. Previous winners, although not for music and culture, have included our former president, Nelson Mandela, and the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu. The book enlivened in me not just a reappreciation for the power of mindset, but the remarkable power that we each have to enliven possibility in ourselves and others. Oh, and the classical music was just a wonderful cherry on top. Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast. Please feel free to pass this on to others and to share your feedback with me. I hope you have a week filled with possibility. Mm-hmm.